Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In 1842, Colonel William J. Worth, commanding in Florida, unilaterally announced the end of hostilities between the U.S. government and the Seminole Indians of Florida. He ordered a reburial of many soldiers who had perished in the seven-year Second Seminole War. Despite its inconclusive ending, the war had been an important proving ground for the Army and for its West Point-trained leadership. Worth was a West Point graduate himself, as had been five of the seven officers in Dade's command who died in the initial battle that signified the war's beginning. On August 15th, then, hundreds of regular Army soldiers marched through St. Augustine. They were escorting seven wagons, representing the seven years of the war, carrying the remains of the fallen soldiers. The column bore the remains to their final resting place, a garden next to St. Francis Barracks. This subsequent reinterment procession was a solemn remembrance, not a victory march. For the past 14 years, in today's St. Augustine National Cemetery, the West Point Society of North Florida has organized an annual commemoration of this first event as a means of keeping faith with those fallen and to bring attention to all who suffered and sacrificed, soldier, citizen, and seminal alike during this long, difficult struggle. Joining us today is Joseph Natzinger, a retired Army colonel and West Point graduate of the class of 1960. He discusses the strong ties to the Second Seminole War demonstrated through the outsized role of many U.S. Military Academy graduates and how it served as a proving ground for some who went on to command armies in the Mexican and American Civil Wars. Joe Natzinger, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Pat. How big a role did West Point officers have in the Second Seminole War? It turns out that Seminole Wars, particularly the Second Seminole War from 35 to 42, saw an outside participation by young West Point graduates. In fact, Point graduates played an enormous role in the Second Seminole War, who were present in most all of its dramatic action. The first Commandant of Cadets was killed in the opening battle, and the fourth Commandant of Cadets is the commanding uh, officer who signed the order declaring that hostilities have ceased. Who were these? first Commandant of Cadet was Captain Gardner, who was uh, killed in the opening ambush of Major Dade's Column, 1835. The fourth Commandant of Cadets was Colonel Wittenworth, the same Worth as Fort Worth, who went on uh, to fight both in the Mexican and the Civil War. And Colonel Worth was a commanding officer of the troops of the regular army in Florida the summer of 1842, when he signed the orders that not only ended the war without a formal treaty, but also prepared the way for a concluding parade and reinterment ceremony at the Garden of the Barracks in St. Augustine. So who was reinterred the St. Augustine, and why St. Augustine? St. Augustine was the oldest major town and rear headquarters during the entire war, and much like Honolulu was in Vietnam War. So there was the major barracks in the whole state was at St. Augustine. They had a garden. That was the appropriate place to collect remains throughout the 
fate of select soldiers, officers and soldiers who had died in the war and bring them to that garden in uh, the St. Augustine Barracks called St. Francis Barracks and was converted from a nunnery to a military barracks by the British when they were here in the hundreds. So how big a deal was the reinterment parade? It was quite a stunning affair, actually. We are fortunate to have a very comprehensive report of it in the newspapers, in the St. Augustine News of the 20 August. It took place on the 15th of August. Colonel Worth, prior to uh, issuing his order uh, terminating uh, the hostilities, had issued an order to gather up the remains of officers who have been killed in battle who have been died on service, including those of non-commissioned officers and soldiers who fell with Major Dave, as also those of several non-commissioned officers and privates who fell under peculiar circumstances of gallantry and conduct. The reinterment took place on the 15th of August, 1842. Parade of 500 regular army troops and cannon procession that came down through the city, bearing the remains in seven wagons uh, draped with the American flag pulled by five elegant mules under half-hour guns, changed to minute guns in the actual ceremony. And then there were distinguished often comments given over the site, which were three vaults that had been prepared to accept the remains. And these vaults then afterwards were covered with Coquina pyramids, and these three Coquina pyramids have become the icon of both the cemetery and really the national cemetery system. They remain are probably the oldest uh, monuments in any national cemetery uh, in the United States. What got you interested and engaged in the Seminole Wars milieu? Seminole Wars contain not only uh, a lot of history, that is interesting and unique uh, in, um, in the development of the United States, but also that pertains directly to West Point. I really didn't pay much attention at all to the wars until I came down to Florida in 1995. I joined the West Point Society of North Florida. We have a mission of trying to uh, keep West Point contributions uh, to the United States in the public consciousness. So people realize the contributions that West Point has made to the development of the country and hopefully will continue to make. What other West Point graduates are of note from the Second Seminole War? It's really quite a list of uh, graduates who were young lieutenants, most of them, during the Seminole War, uh, and then went on, fought in the, most of them, in the Mexican War, War with Mexico, and became senior officers in the Civil War. For example, General Hooker, class of 35, General Anderson, class of 25, General Johnson, class Joe Johnson, uh, 29, General Sedgwick, 37, General Bragg, 37 as well. By the way, he was uh, in the uh, parade which buried the interred remains in 1842. General Magruder, General Thomas, General Sherman, and General Hardy, uh, 38, just to name a few. David Moniak, who died in the war, was also the first Native American to graduate from West Point. 
Yeah, that's correct. Uh, he was a class of uh, 1822, the first uh, Native American, basically a full-blooded uh, Cherokee Indian. Served a short time in the Army, then retired as plantation owner up in the Carolinas when the Seminole War broke out in uh, 1835-36. He raised a regiment of Creek Indians, took them south. He was uh, promoted to brevet major, played a leading role in the Battle of the Wahoo However, as he was leading his unit of Greeks through the swamp against the Seminoles, he was shot through the head and killed. But then it zoomed in with one of the ones that was brought back to the St. Augustine Cemetery for reinterment. St. Augustine is home of the Florida National Guard. Command historian of the Florida National Guard was one Gregory Moore. He was a lieutenant colonel, a class of 1974, an avid uh, historian of the military in general, but uh, also this particular period, Florida's um, territorial existence before it became a state. Gregory said, I want to give you a little talk about the National Cemetery here in St. Augustine and uh, the history that uh, got it started on its way. What we decided to do back in uh, 2006 was, well, let's remember this very moving ceremony and parade each year as close to 15 August as possible on a Saturday. Let's remember this and invite people into it so that we can keep it alive. It, it represents not just the burial of a number of West Point officers, but it represents the sacrifice and service of all who perished in the long uh, Second Seminole War. We tried to uh, bring in uh, reenactors and interested organizations and, and uh, visitors from around Florida. So we try to keep this in front of the public consciousness that this uh, war, which was big and long, big for the time, and long for the time, and we try to elevate perception of the population through this annual ceremony. Prior to you and Greg Moore getting together to do this, there was not a commemoration ceremony. No, although I understand that in the past some of the reenactors, Greg and, and others uh, like to call them living historians, which of course they truly are, time to time gathered at the pyramid for a brief informal ceremony. But this was the first organized event that tried to pattern itself after the actual parade and ceremony in 1842. We drew it basically in 2020, this year will be the 13th iteration, and we knew we had to start small, but we grew it year by year by year until we had really a, a very substantial event, marching down to the pyramids in the morning, then lunch, and followed by a talk on the Seminole War from various important researchers in the Why is it important to do this? is in the annals of making sure history is not lost. There is a large effort of parade and so forth as a way of remembering the past. It was clear, at least to many of us, that 
the Second Seminole War was, except for some of the people born in the actual region, the ones living in the south-central portion of Florida, except for them, there was very little knowledge in or interest in uh, what happened during this period. And it was a critical period, of not only in developing states, but also in developing the American army. You have reenactors, you have living historians. Why are they essential to this commemoration, and what do they do? The reenactors add color as their stories. Each one of them basically has a story of who he's representing. So the public gets to mingle and talk with them, and you also have a visual impact that brings you hopefully back into the period. Remember, that the Seminole Wars took place before photography. Oh, the only thing we have, paintings, and some temporary sketches for the most part, and some modern paintings by a living artist who imagined or reconstruct what might must have looked like. But these living historians then dress up exactly, and uh, as a matter of fact, one of the major additions that have come online to represent the wagons carrying the remains is a exact replica of the 1846 limber caisson drawn by two elegant mules. Uh, this whole uh, caisson in operation was developed by Tom Fitzgerald, a retired Marine Master Sergeant who lives near the Cape Canaveral Cemetery. He has come up every year now for the past some years with his team of mules. The flag is draped over the beautiful caisson uh, with the casket, and it makes quite a visual impact as it goes down the street. We also have incorporated from the very beginning that replica of the six pound cannon, which accompanied the major Dade's faithful column. This is a six pound uh, cannon, which is run by the Peace River Artillery. They have uh, come up every year, and they fire four or five rounds to simulate the minute gun. Up at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy in New York, there's a monument. They also have part of the cannon. What was that? Cannon that accompanied A.J.'s column also was serviced by what they call a sponge staff and rammer, used to lob down the board and take out any sparks so that the blue powder won't ignite. And then the other end is used to ram down the shot. The, the, the powder and the shot. Well, of course, this was with the cannon at the time of the ambush in Major Dade's ambush. Five of the seven officers in the column were West Point graduates. What happened was about six weeks later, burial column from General Gaines came to the site, and uh, actually First Lieutenant Duncan was with him. Now, First Lieutenant Duncan was from the same class as a Lieutenant Basinger who was, was in the column and was killed. And Lieutenant uh, Duncan took uh, this rammer staff, which was still in Basinger's hands, according to the note. He took it off of the battlefield. And in 1843, he sent it to West Point as a piece to be kept for historical purposes. The West Point Museum was just getting started, and with this rammer staff dating back to 1843, it allows uh, West Point the bragging rights of the oldest uh, specific military museum in the country. What we were able to do was to uh, get this rammer staff on loan from the West Point Museum in uh, 2015.
team. They loaned it to us for six months uh, so that uh, we could display it here, and it was uh, uh, white and white. This museum that is right outside the Command Historian's office is in a couple of sections of the old St. Francis Barracks, Allison Simpson, who take over his job when Greg retired, and Allison broke through the bureaucracy in many, many ways to get the loan of the sponge staff back in 2015. Since it began, the West Point Society in North Florida organized the event. It started out by a committee 13 years ago. The committee was eclectic. We embraced people from different organizations and people that were just plain interested in the event and the Seminole War in general. And we grew it slowly, still based around the West Point effect of it. However, as we grew up in terms of numbers of living historians and the significance of the event, the Seminole Wars Foundation became very interested in it and became a very strong partner with us. Uh, this year, it's going to be organized under Allison Simpson with the National Guard. What do you expect from this year's event, and how may it be a little different from past years? Well, this year, uh, things are going to be a little different, given the strictures that we're under. Uh, we will uh, have the event kind of in a relatively small fashion to what we've had years past. There'll be no parade, but there will be a small honor guard at the cemetery where we will say a few words. We usually say that prayer, lay the wreath, and that will be pretty much it. However, at the same time, this will be the first uh, time where the command historian of the Florida National Guard will be uh, the overall organizer and host. West Point Society has brought it to a certain level, but the uh, importance and reach of the event has expanded beyond uh, strictly the West Point aspect of it, uh, very much to our pleasure, and, uh, and we're happy to see that. The Florida National Guard, Allison Simpson, has agreed to take over the mantle of uh, leading the organizing committee. But she will be assisted very closely by our society, but also the Seminole Wars Foundation. So this year will be quiet. We will not advertise it the way we used to. At the present moment, we're not inclined to have large groups of people come. Probably we'll have about 10 reenactors, replayers. We still have bagpipes and buglers and drummers, so there will be some music. Joe, the only thing I would change about it is move it to 15 December because it is hot and humid on the 15th of August. Yes, it is. The 15th of August was hot, is hot, and will forever be hot. Fortunately, we're not out there in the open that long. Usually the parade kicks off around 1045 the pyramid takes about 45 minutes. The rest of the time is spent the lunch and the thoughts are, are spent in air-conditioned spaces. <laughs> but uh, we decided we really wanted that to be close to the date. And it just so happens that Saturday closest to the date this year is exactly the date. I do want to give a shout-out to the Boy Scouts because one year that I was up there and with heat and humidity, they were out there with cold bottles of water and they were bringing them around to people, making sure that folks got some liquids in their body before they collapsed. 
Glad you brought that up. They have really great volunteers. The troop is led by one of the graduates on the committee. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I gave a talk to that group about this whole event and what it signifies. A lot of your commemoration work, you joined the board of the Seminole Wars Foundation, and the foundation sponsors this podcast. What does the board do, and what do you do when you're serving on the board? Another graduate introduced me to the foundation and then after a couple of years working with Greg who was on the board the board accepted me and my particular interest was on St. Augustine in general bring St. Augustine into the home because most of the people on the board are very familiar with all of the Seminole War sites from the Paulus South but not so much with St. Augustine and, and this ceremony uh, they're experts and they knew about the ceremony of course but my effort on the board was to bring that to the fore. In 2017, we assisted the, in the Seminole Wars Foundation of sponsoring a first convocation of Seminole War historians in conjunction with the event. And as uh, you may be aware, this convocation is uh, repeating itself every two years at various locations around Florida. The Convocation of Seminole War Historians is for whom? Who can attend? And why did you want to do it? It was another kind of brainchild uh, from a, a con combination of Greg and myself. We were driving back and forth to board meetings in the Seminole War Foundation. It was a three-hour drive down to the headquarters there near Dade City, St. Augustine. Plenty of time to discuss things going back and forth. And we came across the idea that what can the Seminole War Foundation do that is kind of different from other Seminole War operations around state. They are mainly focused on specific sites, like the excellent one the Fort King or Okeechobee and so forth. Seminole War Foundation has always been involved heavily in overarching literature, covering all aspects of the Seminole War available to everybody, not focused necessarily on one or, or even two or three specific locations. But we thought that what really was kind of missing was an opportunity for all these other locations of organizations and clubs involved in the Seminole War aspect to get together periodically and exchange ideas. And so this led to the fact of a convocation, all the folks coming together, and, um, living historians, uh, formal organizations, and having a two or three day meeting. We kind of came on the idea once every two years. And this has proved very popular. The first one we kicked off in St. Augustine here in combination with the 2017 commemoration at the cemetery. But then it went to Okeechobee. It'll be at Fort King in a couple of years, and I'm not sure who has it this year. Loxahatchee. There you are. So these other these other organizations have stepped up, and, oh, we want to host this one, we want to host this one. Uh, so it proved to be a very valuable and well-attended. Do you have to be a historian to attend? Uh, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, I would highly recommend it to anybody. At convocations, the way you really get an overview for someone that's not been immersed in any of this before, maybe just got a little inkling of it, the way to get immersed in what's going on, any different perspective. 
for wrapping up, what do you think the public should know as a takeaway about the Seminole Wars, maybe in particular the Second Seminole War, but this period in our nation's history? Quite a formative period, certainly for Florida, without getting too deep into the, the very large civil acts aspect of it, what has kind of interested me for further inquiry is foundation that it laid for the development of the United States Army. That aspect of it is overlooked. There have been a number of, uh, some literature uh, just recently on how the Mexican War prepared both the South and the Northern armies, actually American armies if you want to put it in those terms, uh, how the Mexican War prepared them for uh, the major uh, conflicts, uh, for example, the trip around by, by Martin Duger, the West Pointer of the Civil War. But what they have missed, and yes, indeed, the Mexican War has taken junior officers, uh, the senior officers became field grade officers and learned how to handle uh, large formation, participate in large operations in the Mexican War, but they got cut their teeth in, for the most part, the Florida Wars and also to some other extent some of the wars of the Western Frontiers. A lot of them were West Point graduates. They were operating in Florida in small units, relatively independent operations, and just what the junior officers need to learn. That aspect is what has intrigued me in particular. Also, you have the eye-opening dimension of the way the Indians were just basically pushed out of their territory. Some of them accepted it, others didn't, but nevertheless, uh, we didn't give them much of a choice. Joe Knapsinger, thanks for what you've done with setting up a complication of historians, with commemorating the first commemoration of reinterring soldiers who perished in the Second Seminole War, and thanks for joining us today for the Seminole War podcast. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to uh, get this out. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.